Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. This morning, we'll be continuing our series on community. This is week four of Life Together. And through Life Together, we want to talk about, you know, what does it mean to be a biblical community as well as to cast a vision for this alternative community that God has called us to be here on the earth. Uh, we are to be, in some sense, a prophetic witness to all the world that there is a better way to live, that Jesus' way is the way to life in all its fullness. And through the weeks, you know, we, we want to, you know, also offer a vision for our community. How can our community live in such a compelling way uh, in, you know, the midst of the culture that we're all living uh, in in the middle of? And so last week, Pastor Janice talked about honour in the midst of a culture of contempt, and I think she did a really brilliant job. And this morning, we'll be talking about a community of rest in a culture of exhaustion. A community of rest in a culture of exhaustion. Now, many of you know that I lived in uh, the U.S. for just about three years, and uh, you know I really, really enjoyed my time there. Uh, my days, you know, involved uh, you know, living in a really small town where almost everything shut by about eight to nine p.m., and so there was virtually nothing to do. Uh, and on the weekends, you know, I would go for hikes. Can you imagine that? I'll go for hikes. Uh, I would, you know, uh, go for long drives and really slow. Uh, pace, you know, uh, like the, the speed limit was like way lower than it is in Singapore. And so just really long, slow drives. And sometimes I would go to the gun range and shoot guns and eat barbecue at night. So basically I was a hillbilly. And, uh, and, uh, and I would, that's my, my vision for retirement, right? You know, just barbecue, long drives, and maybe a golden retriever with a fireplace. That's, that's what I want. Uh, and so, you know, all this to say, when I moved back to Singapore, there was a lot of adjustments that I needed to go through. Uh, first off, the weather. Uh, when I landed in Singapore, I basically shut myself uh, in an air-conditioned room for two weeks uh, to let my body acclimatize uh, to Singapore humidity. Uh, the other thing that I found myself really needing to adjust to was the pace of life uh, here in Singapore. I remember one instance, uh, it was the first month I... I had come back from the U.S. and I was uh, taking the train for the first time. And I made my way, you know, I uh, took the escalator up to the train platform. I was just standing there, you know, um, minding my own business. And then this guy just comes huffing and puffing up the escalator. And so he was like scaling, you know, the entire escalator. He was running and rushing and he looked, you know, so you know, tired, exhausted. It was in such a hurry. And then as he walked past me, he brushed me and it was all sweaty. And so... He, you know, deposited a piece of himself with me, and so, um, and so, you know, like I could see the droplets on my hand, and I was like, "What is this guy doing?" And so he he made his way past me, and he makes a beeline for the train that was stationary that was waiting on the platform, and he jumps literally, you know, I could see him, you know, jumping towards the train, and then the door just shuts in his face. A bit of me goes, "Yes," but uh, <laughs> but anyway. And so, you no, know, he stands there in front of a train, totally disappointed, dejected, and he was huffing and puffing, right? And he looked as though like his lungs was going to fall out of his mouth. He was just so tired and exhausted. And so I walked up next to him, and I decided to do, you know, the Christian thing. I asked, like, are you okay? 
Uh, of course, I, you know, I thought he would have gotten hurt by you know, that, that whole uh, maneuver, and he said he was okay. And so I just struck up a simple conversation. It's like, oh, you know, are you in a rush somewhere? You know, is there somewhere you need to go urgently? And then he looked at me, puzzled, and he said, no. <laughs> so I stand there puzzled as well. <laughs> what is that? Now, in some sense, that's a picture for how many of us live in modern society today. We live at such a frenetic pace, always rushing, always hurrying, always hustling, and we don't even know why. Always rushing from point to point, living life at this insane pace with no margin. And many of us don't even know why we do it. We just do it because we live in this city, in this culture. And so the case we're making here today, you know, through this teaching, is that one of the most compelling features of the biblical community, especially in a fast-paced, high-ambition, upwardly mobile city like Singapore, is a spirit of restfulness. Restfulness is one of the most compelling traits that the biblical community is to carry, a spirit of restfulness in a culture of exhaustion. Now, restfulness, I don't talk about it in the relaxation sense, like we know how to relax the best, or we go for the most vacations, like Christians and vacations like we're number one. Not in that sense, but restfulness, that is not just the restoration of the body, but the restoration of our souls. What does it look like to live at such a restful pace where our bodies not just recover, but our souls come to life and flourish in God's presence and kingdom? That we may become a people of love in an exhausted world. And the core thesis of uh, this teaching is this, a restful spirit is spiritual warfare in a culture of exhaustion. A restful spirit is spiritual warfare in a culture of exhaustion. Much of the world, much of the pace, much of culture today seeks to conform us into this kind of like image of an exhausted person, a person who spends his energy, his or her energy, out to the point of exhaustion. And in many ways, a restful spirit cultivating this life of rest is a kind of warfare in the midst of culture that we're living in today. Amen? Yeah. Are you all with me? Yeah. Some of you are exhausted from what, I, what you just heard? Yeah. Don't worry, let me get you to a restful place shortly. Let's uh, begin this time with a word of prayer. Let's do something a bit different today. I invite you all in this room to just take a deep breath in. Take a deep breath in. And then take a deep breath out. And then just feel the tension in your neck and your shoulders. Just, just you know, release through that breath. Take a deep breath in again. Take a deep breath out. And imagine in your mind's eye, you're just breathing in God's presence. And then breathing out anxiety the burdens that you've carried throughout the week, stuff that you've brought into this hall that just causes you stress, anxiety. Take a deep breath in of God's presence, His joy, His peace, His delight toward you. And a breath out all the things that are not yours to carry to begin with. Jesus, we thank you for this promise of rest that we've just read about in Scripture. You give us rest not just for our bodies, but for our souls. And God, many of us live uh, in this city and our souls are worn out, are worn out by the pace to which we live. And God, our hearts so endeavor to 
live in accordance to your word. We, we read of this promise and yet we know that there's a disparity and a gap between how we live now and how you have called us to live. And God, we ask for your grace to be in this place. Teacher, come teach us. Teach us your ways. We lean upon you and we look to you this day. Though I may be you the one speaking, Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll be the one teaching. You'll be the one speaking to the hearts of your people this day. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for this promise of rest. Give us fresh vision as we look upon your words. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> How many of you are familiar with the Japanese term karoshi? None of you, because it's quite an obscure term. But karoshi uh, li literally is a Japanese term which translates to death by overwork. Death by overwork. Now, uh, this term uh, picked up popularity in the 1980s. Uh, Kamiya Shuji was a Japanese business prodigy uh, in the, uh, who was active in the 1980s. And after he graduated from college, he started working for uh, the Osaka branch of Ace Securities, a respected brokerage firm. And like most graduates, he was assigned to external sales, which was the hardest and least rewarding branch of the company. Now, Kamiya was given the task of co-calling potential clients, and the scheduled work hours were from 8.40 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. But he found that, you know, in the, with those hours, he could not generate enough leads and was falling behind, and so he began to work harder. And so he changed his schedule on his own from 6.50 a.m. to 10 p.m., seven days a week. So previously, it was 8 to 5, five days, and he changed it from about 6 to 10, seven days a week. Now, Kami was blessed with like mental fortitude and physical stamina and became a rising star in his generation. He became a cultural icon where executives aspired to work like Kami did, to work with the level of like acumen, to work with like his kind of work ethic. And he became, you know, a kind of an instructor for senior executives that were above him. He was producing so much. And this was on top of his 90-hour-a-week uh, workload uh, in finance. He you know, would train people, he would do all these other things. And so Kame, in, in some sense, you know, in, in our culture, for many of us, you know, we think of a person like that, is absolutely crushing it. Like, look at him, man. He is like, so productive. He's doing so much. Right? He's sleeping so little, producing so much. Like, we all want to be like him. However, during a weekend sales seminar at a resort, Kame collapsed and died. His heart simply gave up. And he was only 26 years old. Now, Kamei wasn't the first to die on his job. In Japan, this happened with such frequency that they came up with this term, karoshi, death by overwork, karoshi. Now, we think of this kind of occurrence as something like far off and just isolated to one part of the world. But it's my honest observation that this kind of epidemic of workaholism to the point of exhaustion and death is present in nearly every first world city in our world. A recent survey showed that Singaporeans work an average of 600 more hours than the Japanese. And some of you go, yes, we win. <laughs> Let me put it to you, this is not something you want to be winning at. Uh, a recent poll done showed that Singaporeans are 61% of our respondents uh, would choose to stay on in their workplace beyond their designated working hours just to, quote, show face. Uh, this refers to the act of being present just for the sake of it. Uh, respondents don't only, quote, show face while working overtime. It seems that 57% of them also show up at work even when they're ill 
for the same reason. About 5 in 10 admitted that they tend to stay connected to work during their holidays. Almost 80% check their emails during holidays at least once. 27% of them do so once a day. And one in three said that they believe that they're expected to be available constantly by their supervisors at all times. And the point is this. For many of us, even when we vacation, we don't do it well. We do it poorly. We don't rest well. And as followers of Jesus, we have to land with this simple and yet often forsaken thought is that, no, we can be really capable at following Jesus in some aspects of our lives and yet completely reject his teachings in other aspects. I'd like to put it to you, for many of us, you know, though we are seasoned Christians, we've been in church long enough, you know, we read our Bible, we pray, we do all the right things. For many of us, we have rejected the rest that Jesus has on offer. We, in some sense, have adopted a pace of life that does not permit us to abide in God. I'll say that again to this side. We, in some sense, in the midst of living this first world culture, this hustle and pace, have adopted a pace of life that does not permit us to abide with God. Thank you, left side. You're my favorite now. Now, growing up in church, one of the things I hear from preachers really often is that this idea of burnout is utterly incompatible with faith. A person who is wholeheartedly following Jesus and doing all the right things uh, does not burn out. Burnout, in some sense, is an evidence of a misplaced or lack of faith. A preacher would say, we don't burn out, we burn up. <laughs> that was my mantra for many years. I say that with a lot of resonation and not, not joking at all. However, today, you know, we have a better understanding of this phenomenon of burnout, right? Burnout was first diagnosed as a legitimate psychological issue in, the ni in 1974. It, it can be summed up as physical or mental collapse caused by overwork or stress. The WHO in 2019 came out with this de definition. Burnout is a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. Little did the WH know that months after reporting this, that everyone in the world would bring their work home and the lines between work and home became utterly impossible to distinguish between. Now, psychologists will talk about burnout having three components. The first, exhaustion. You're physically and emotionally exhausted from being under stress for so long, consistently. And then cynicism, right? Burnout comes with this feeling of cynicism where you switch from doing the best that you can to doing the bare minimum. And then it leads to self-blame. When you start blaming yourself, what is wrong with me? What is lacking in me? Why can't I handle this? Why am I not good enough? Helen Peterson, a journalist and author, wrote an article and it became an eventual book titled Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Can't even. How millennials became the burnout generation. Don't talk to me. I can't even. Don't ask me for favors. I can't even. Don't start with me now. I can't even. She draws a distinguishing, uh, distinguish, she distinguishes between, uh, she draws a line to distinguish. <laughs> Come on. I promise I went to school and I. <laughs> She draws a distinction between regular exhaustion and burnout. I have a quote out. She says this, exhaustion means going to the point 
where you can't go any further. Burnout means reaching that point and pushing yourself to keep going, whether for days or weeks or years. And she says this in an article about current culture. Burnout isn't a place to visit and come from. It is our permanent residence. To sum up all that we have just said about burnout, burnout is when your soul can no longer bear the weight of your life. And many of us live with that kind of burnout as something that's normative. You know, we have gotten accustomed to it. Or perhaps, you know, we psych ourselves up in our mind to think that this is a way to produce resilience in us. And we just keep pushing and pushing and pushing to the point of exhaustion. And it's not just about your body swearing out, your emotions being out of whack. But spiritually, spiritually our lives are at detriment because of this exhaustion. Our spiritual lives begin to wither away because of exhaustion. Henry Nouwen, this brilliant Catholic thinker, uh, in reflecting about you know, one of the dark seasons of his life, would say this, I was living in a very dark place, and the term burnout was a convenient psychological translation for a spiritual death. This is what is at stake for many of us, not just our bodies you know, wearing out and getting tired and then maybe go for a vacation and just solve everything. No, I'd like to put it to you folks that your spiritual lives are at stake. And for some of you, it's because of the pace of life to which you have adopted. I have a long quote for you. Are you ready? Andrew Soboda, he wrote this brilliant book uh, called Subversive Sabbath. It's my favorite book about the Sabbath. And he says this about our current culture. Our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history. Yet, with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied. Embowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away. Exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on the edge. The result is a hollow culture that in Paul's words is ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just think about it. Just let it sit, sit with you. Ever learning, but never able to come to true knowledge. Our bodies wear ragged. Our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit still and be. As we drown ourselves in a 24-7 living, we seem to be able to do anything but quench our true thirst for the life of God. We have failed to ask ourselves the question Jesus asked of us. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world? and yet forfeit your soul. He will go on to say this uh, further down in his book, that we have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in all of human history. Now, I just like to you know, take some time to speak from my world, from the world of pastoring and ministry, and many of us have this, you know, you know, myth kind of entrenched in our mindset that just as long as I do enough spiritual activity and you know, I go to church often enough and you know, I participate in serving outreach or read my Bible, that I would not be susceptible to any of this. Let me put it to you folks. I go to church more often than all of you do. Uh, and pastors, ministry workers, they do the same. You know, they, their lives revolve around ministry, around spiritual activity, around the work of God. 
And yet, when we just do a cursory search, you will know that pastoring can be a really lethal occupation. And I don't say this to drum up sympathy or empathy from any of you. But you know, it's, it's a fact, it's a statement of truth that pastoring, especially in cities like this, can be really stressful. And the emotional hazards surrounding ministries are a very real thing. There seems to be tragedy after tragedy in the church world. I think of the story of Andrew Stockline, the, uh, the former pastor of Inland Hills Church. Now, Andrew was handed over this, you know, essentially mega church from his father when his father suddenly passed at 55 years old. Now, Andrew was young, you know, he was in his early 30s, and he just felt this call to continue in his father's work. He felt this immense responsibility to keep the work going. And, you know, in the, a large church like his, right, this is a sizable church, thousands of people, he felt the pressure Right, all that pressure just you know, kind of fall on him almost overnight. The pace and demands of a ministry that size was immense. And so you know, he started to develop health issues because of all that stress. He started to develop panic attacks, uh, breakdowns, and eventually he was asked to take a four-month uh, long sabbatical. And after his sabbatical, uh, Andrew came back to church and his, in his first sermon, he talked openly about his battles with depression, anxiety. He talked openly about his struggles. And his wife would join him on stage, and she would say this. I have to quote up. She said this about uh, the journey that they had been going on. She said, we still have a long way to go to work through it, but we are all in. You guys, he loves this place so much, he didn't want to stop. He would have kept on going and going and going, and it probably would have cost him his life. That's how much he loves all of you. That's how much he loves this place. Now, tragically, uh, some months after you know, this statement was made, uh, his work did cost him his life, and he ended up dying from self-inflicted wounds in his church office while his three boys were playing outside. The truth is, pathological busyness, workaholism, hurry, hustle, ambition that is our sync with the way of Jesus is one commandment that we frequently brag about breaking. We don't hear people brag about committing a murder. We don't hear people brag about having an affair. But we regularly hear people, even in church, brag about how much they have done, how much hours they have worked, how busy they are, how unrested they are. We venerate workaholism even whilst we suffer under its cruel tyranny. Consider the go-to response for when someone asks, how are you? What's the response? Busy. Busy. And we say that you know, with some measure of resonation, but for many of us, we subconsciously think that unless I say busy, my life will be uh, kind of implied, like my life is not significant, I'm not doing enough, I'm not important enough. When was the last time you heard someone reply to that question? How are you, man? My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And then you will think, does this person have a trust fund or all right, who's, funding, who's funding this lifestyle? Though we can all agree that busyness is bad and harmful in the long run, we still on a deep level believe that if we aren't busy, preoccupied, or productive all the time, we are somehow less valuable. Rest in a culture of exhaustion. So folks, how are you? How are you doing? Busy, tired, exhausted? Right. 
So in the midst of all this, folks, I have good news for you. I have the gospel. I have the gospel. Jesus in the midst of even a world like ours, a culture like ours, one that venerates workaholism, hustle, one that calls us to be exhausted without a real point and real meaning. Jesus invites all of us to take on his easy yoke, to discover a rest that transcends even rest for physical bodies, but rest for our souls. This is gospel. This is the good news. And so I'm going to read that text again. I want you, in light of all that we heard, in light of how some of you may be feeling now, Right? Maybe for some of you, guilt, for some of you, exhaustion, for some of you, even re-evaluating how you pace your life. Let these words wash over you afresh. Here are the words of our Lord to all of us. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. First, Jesus says, come to me. Come is an invitation. No coercion. It's not a commandment. It's not a rule. It's an invitation to come to Him. It's not to come to, you know, just a guide or a program, but it's to come to Jesus Himself, to sit with Him, to abide with Him. And it's, when, it's truly when we abide in the vine that we bear much fruit, that our lives begin to flourish. And Jesus says, come to me to Jesus, to himself. He is the one who can truly give rest. Now, Jesus' message is so good because his message is a message of rest. In a first century culture, much of you know, your, your kind of value to society is by how much you produce, by how much you can you know, accomplish. But Jesus would say to the people then and to the people now, your value is not determined by what you can produce, but your value is determined by who I say you are. And because we can rest in that security, we can now rest in Jesus and find rest, true rest. Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I'll make you successful. He doesn't say, come to me and I'll heap religious commandments upon you. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. In some sense, salvation is about entering into this rest. The way of Jesus is rooted and anchored in rest. And he says this, this line. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And the evidence of taking up on Jesus' kind of rest is a gentleness and humility of heart. It's a gentleness and humility of heart. It's only when we have truly rest or found rest in Jesus that we may have these traits of the heart, gentleness and humility. If you think about it, you know, being in a hurry, being frazzled, being on the edge, how would we then be a people of love to our world? In some sense, hurry and busyness is incompatible with love. Love is patient, love is kind. Hurry and busyness is not. And Jesus would say, find rest for your souls and you would have a gentleness and humility in your heart. Just like, just as I have. Now, Jesus intends for you, I want you to hear this, to live life in all its fullness, to live life to the full. He wants that for you. And this is not the prosperity gospel. This is the actual gospel. This is Jesus contrasting Satan who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus will say, I have come to give life in all its fullness, life, abundance, 
abundant life. Jesus is the good shepherd, cup overflowing, not wanting. Life under Jesus is intended to be life in all its fullness. This is the promise of the gospel. Now, in some sense, in order to experience this true gospel, we must let go of our grips of the other gospels that we have come to hold on to. It could be the gospel of progress, the gospel of self-agency, the gospel of self-determination, the gospel of independence, the gospel of self-actualization, the gospel of hustle. And Jesus would say, take on my yoke. And yoke is not egg yolk. <laughs> yoke is, is a kind of agrarian term, right? And it's essentially a first century euphemism for way of life. Take on my way of life. Jesus would say, learn from me. Notice here, he does not promise to take away our burdens, our labor, our yoke, so to speak. He offers us a way to carry these things well. Eugene Peterson, who, who wrote the message trans, uh, transliteration, has this transliteration of the verse that we just read. And it says this, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Many of us need a lesson on how to rest well. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the enforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Over against our culture of hyper-productivity, progress and burnout, Jesus invites all of us to be a community of rest. A community of rest. The question we are led to next is how, right? You know, we're Singaporeans. We need practical three steps. How, how, how? Come on, Andre, how? <laughs> Thankfully, you know, sometimes Jesus entertains, you know, our little requests. And, uh, and he offers us a how. And immediately following the text that we read in Matthew 11, comes Matthew, Matthew 12, and we know that, you know, the Gospels weren't written with verse numbers or chapter headings. So it's one continuous flow. And what immediately follows 11 verses 28 to 30, is chapter 12. And chapter 12 begins with not one, but two stories on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath. We find the answer in the next set of verses that we read. We read. It is about the Sabbath. Where Jesus is concerned, where the writers of the New Testament is concerned, rest for our souls and the practice of the Sabbath goes hand in hand. Now Sabbath, if you're not familiar with what Sabbath is, uh, it comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which literally means to stop or to cease. Stop or to cease. It's a day to simply stop. To stop working, to stop planning, to stop wanting, to stop buying, to stop accumulating, to stop achieving. We cease in order to rest. Ruth Haley Barton uh, describes Sabbath this way. Sabbath is more than just a day of rest. It is a way of ordering one's entire life around a pattern of working six days and then resting on the seventh. It's an approach to living in time that helps us honor the rhythm of things, work and rest, fruitfulness and dormancy, giving and receiving, being and doing, activism and surrender. Now we find this idea of Sabbath consistent all through scripture. We find it in the opening pages of scripture, what we just read in Genesis 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he, God himself, rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. 
Now for this next portion, we'll just pull out some observations from the text in Genesis 2. The first thing to notice is this. God himself built a rhythm into the fabric of creation. He built a rhythm. He built a natural order for things, a rhythm that we've just read about in that quote. God works, so we work. And God rests, so we rest. Work and rest live in this symbiotic relationship. We work for six days and then we rest for one. Now, there's a story uh, in 1793, France, in an effort to increase human productivity, de-Christianized uh, the calendar by modifying the seven-day week to a 10-day work week. Uh, so new clocks were invented, uh, you know, they, they redid the whole thing. I believe there was a PR campaign. However, right, this kind of shift you know, to increase productivity from a seven-day to 10-day week ended up in absolute disaster, right? Uh, suicide rates skyrocketed, people burn out, production decreased, and all of that. Why? It's because humans were not made to work for nine days and rest one. We were designed from the dawn of creation to work for six days and to rest for one. This seven-day rhythm is not a byproduct of human invention or ingenuity or know-how. This seven-day rhythm is sacred. It's sacred. We see God inaugurating this rhythm himself. You're not a machine. You're not made to go, go, go. You're made to rest. After six days of universe sculpting, right, sun, moon, stars, animal, all that stuff, after six days of universe sculpting work, God rested. God rested. Now, I want you to catch this, right? If you don't catch anything else in my message, just catch this. One simple point. God rested. God rested. God himself, God the most powerful being in all of the cosmos, in all of existence, God himself rested. God on whom in whom all things consist, God who holds all things together, God who is above all things, that God rested. Now you don't know my personality, you know, I'm a mouse break, you know, I'm an INTJ, and I just like, like to go, 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 go. God rested. Now you don't know the demands of my work, you know, you don't know how needed I am, you know, in my job, in my family, you know, don't know all the demands, you don't know me, God rested. God, the most important and powerful being in all of the universe, rested. And it's not as though God expended all of his cosmic energy and then God was burned out and then needed to rest. No, this was a rhythm. This is something that he inaugurated as his good and perfect design for all of creation, for all of us. And he modeled it himself. And the idea here to rest is not like, you know, God was like tired and then needed to like sleep it off. No, it has this idea of delight. It's this you know, Hebrew term manuha, which means to delight, to take delight in something. Have you all ever built an Ikea shelf? The ones with the little wooden pegs that if you use a hammer, the wooden pegs get bent, and so you have to use your bare hands. And you use your bare hands, and then your hands get all bruised. And then you look at this thing, and it's like, it looks so simple in the store. Why does it have like 52 square pegs? And then screws. And then you put it all together after three hours and screaming at your wife. And you take a step back and you go, Manuha, the light. The light. I, I am a man. Uh, not, not in that dysfunctional sense, but, but that is what Sabbath is, is to take a step back and to delight. To delight at what God has given you, to delight at what you've done, to delight in God Himself. Rest. The other thing we observe in the text is this that God blessed 
the Sabbath day. He blessed the Sabbath day. He blessed it. And it's very easy to just glance past this language. But in Genesis account, we read that God essentially blessed three things. First, he blessed the animals, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. And then he blessed humans. He blessed Adam and Eve and said, go, be fruitful and multiply. Spread life all over the earth. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then he blesses a day. He blesses a day. He blesses the Sabbath day. Which if I'm reading, you know, the kind of story of scripture, right, that the Sabbath day has the same life-giving potential that animals and human beings were created with. This day is full of potential to release life in our beings and in our world. Now, our culture today knows how to relax really well, and we often confuse relaxation for restoration and renewal. Folks, the average time it takes all of y'all to binge through a Netflix series is four days. For some of you overachievers, two days. I see the guilt in your faces. <laughs> and in my own face, okay. So you think, right, how many of you, you know, binge watch a show, let's like pick something really interesting, like the remake of Liu Xinghuarian, and you watch the remake of Liu Xinghuarian, right, and you reminisce your F4ness and F5, F4? Four, only four of them. And you reminisce and you're like, oh, this is so great. And you sing along the songs and you binge it and you binge it and you're done with two days. You have not slept. And then you take a step back from the TV or computer and go, man, I have life in all its fullness. I'm just filled with like life-giving presence of God steaming in my bones and I can go about God's mission and purpose. My soul is all alive. If you are able to do that, please teach because... I don't. Uh, now, the, the point I'm making is this, that restoration and relaxation are two completely different things. On the Sabbath day, when we honor this God-given sacred rhythm, our souls are not just relaxed. They're restored. They're restored. They're restored. John Tyson, a pastor of New York, uh, has this you know, simple teaching on life's energy bar. And so, how many of you, you know, like to charge your phones? And you charge your phones, you know, and like your phone's like 79% and you just cannot take it. You have to have it at 100%. OCD, you, like me, right? And so John Tyson has this teaching on like life's energy bar. And so it's a simple kind of diagram, right? And so often, you know, when we feel like our energies are depleted, we feel a bit tired, like we get it to like kind of a low point, right? And tino, 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 and then we're like, okay, we need to go and rest, right? And so we rest, oftentimes we rest to this point. We rest here, you know, rest to like just enough, we rest to like, okay, I rest enough so that I can take on the next day. I rest enough such that, you know, I'm not an emotional grump. I rest enough so that I can work the next day. And we don't often rest to the full. We don't rest to the point of restoration. We rest just so that we can work again. Now, he makes this really simple point. And that is this, that in that gap, what we often miss out is this. We miss out love. We miss out joy. We miss our peace in the mercy calling. And so the case he makes is this, that without rest, rest to the full, life in all its fullness, we cannot live into the life that Jesus has on offer for all of us. And so, land with a simple question, and that is this. Do you view your rest, Sabbath, how many hours you sleep, margin in your day-to-day, as essential components in your discipleship to Jesus. 
Jesus said the greatest commandment in all of Scripture is to love, to love God and His people well. And we cannot do it when we are unrested, when we are in a hurry, when we are busy, when we are emotionally out of sync, when we are whack. Case in point, um, I say this not because I have a black belt in resting. I don't. Look at my face. I'm, I'm just tired all the time. But, but I so want to do this, and I so want to do this well. Um, just a case in point, I want to be honest and vulnerable before you. Uh, I was driving out of my house uh, earlier today, you know, and I was driving, and then, you know, traffic kind of like stopped at this like usual kind of turn where traffic kind of moves smoothly. And then I, I was like, oh no, like, I think maybe there's an accident. And so I kind of peeled off to the right and, and moved in. And, uh, and then I saw, you know, uh, that uh, a car had this minor collision with a bus. And so it was just like, just kissed the, the back end. The people looked okay, and uh, it was just a minor collision, but, you know, it was on standstill. And I recognized uh, the couple. The couple goes to the gym that I go to. And so I recognized them. And so, you know, in my head, I'm like, okay, maybe I should, like, get out of the car and offer help. But then I look at the time, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm late. I'm late to church, and, like, I'm in a hurry, and then, like, oh, yo, like, there's a baby in the back. Oh, yo, I'm, like, so busy, and, like, I, and I have to preach today, and like, I don't get sweaty. And all these thoughts begin to fill my mind. Right? I was in a hurry. I was busy. I needed to do so much. And I didn't get out of my car. And, uh, and I just drove off, you know. And from that point onwards, all the way to church, I just felt this immense conviction in my heart, this immense guilt. Like, why didn't I stop, you know? Why, I mean, I could have, you know, but I was just too busy and preoccupied myself in order to stop and love someone. And, and I just say this as an honest reflection of where I'm at, but I, I don't know whether you would embrace that kind of reflection as well. And just think about it, that if Jesus was busy in a hurry, all the time. We wouldn't have stories like the woman at the well or the adulterous woman, you know, or like the woman who touched the hem of his garment that he would stop and give her his attention. Jesus, if Jesus was busy all the time and in a hurry, he simply could not love. I'd like to put it to you that your busyness, your hyper-productive schedule, your pace of life does not form you into a person of love. The only way we enter into that is when we have margin and when we learn to rest in Jesus. Amen? The third observation of the text is this. God made the Sabbath day holy. He made the Sabbath day holy. Some of you are wondering, when is this summon going to end? Can Andre hurry up? That's the problem. <laughs> so I'm just going to take my own sweet time. No, I'm just kidding. We're landing, we're landing shortly. Don't keep your stones in your pocket, all right? Now, there's this uh, principle uh, when you do any kind of hermeneutical study or study of the Bible called the principle of first mention. And that is, you know, whenever a word is first mentioned in Scripture, it sets the precedence for how that word, when it reappears in Scripture, how it is to be interpreted and understood. Now, it's interesting that the first time, the first time the word holy appears in the Bible is in reference to time. It's in reference to a day. It's intriguing, right? You know, you think that God, after creating the world and, and creating all of these things, right, all the stuff, that God would maybe, you know, make a holy space or holy place for himself, right? Like, this is the holy place, you know, and everyone, you know, just come to this holy place. Or you make a temple or shrine, right? You know, you erect something, right? But God does not create a holy space. Instead, he creates a holy time. 
the Sabbath. The Sabbath. As if to say that, I, God, you know, am in all things, and in all things consist, I am omnipresent, I am everywhere. And so you do not find me in a holy space. You find me in a holy time to stop, to sit, to come to me. Abraham Joshua Herschel says this, that the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals, architecture and time. Instead of erecting for himself a holy place, he makes a holy day. Which is to say that, you know, when we want to find God, yes, you know, I believe in the value of like having a pilgrimage and going to somewhere, you know, going to this like, you know, spectral spiritual sites and all of that. But God would say that you cannot pinpoint or, or isolate him to just one geographical location. He is everywhere. He's in all things. And so to find God, we don't have to make this grand pilgrimage. All we have to do, especially in a city like ours, is to simply stop. And he will be found by us. You want to experience God, you enter into His day, this holy day, the Sabbath. Abraham Herschel would say this, that Sabbath is eternity uttering a day. Eternity uttering a day. Another author will say this, that Sabbath keeping isn't a condition of getting into heaven. It is the condition we'll find heaven when we get there. One of the great controversies of Jesus' ministry was that it was always, always healing people on the Sabbath day. And people are like, why don't you observe the rules, Jesus? But they missed the entire point. That Jesus was not kind of going against the Sabbath or breaking the Sabbath. He was fulfilling the Sabbath. Because Sabbath is about restoration. It's about renewal. It's about healing. And Jesus comes and offers us an inbreaking of the Sabbath reality. Restoration for our bodies. Restoration for our souls. And when we enter into the Sabbath day, we enter into a foretaste of what the kingdom of God fully realized on our earth, in our world, would look like. Rest for our souls. Restoration for our bodies. Amen. Now, I'll close off with uh, one final story. Uh, my favorite story uh, of you know, a conversion or like a really kind of like godly transformation, indistinguishable kind of conversion, is that of uh, the Apostle John. The Apostle John, and uh, you know, John 13, uh, as, as some of you may be aware, you know, is this incredible chapter about Jesus' servanthood, right? Jesus would wash the feet of his disciples. And this, you know, contextually was a moment of incredible confusion for his disciples, right? Jesus brings them together, right, for the Passover meal, and then he takes off his outer garments and he begins to wash their feet. And now their image of Jesus was this like kind of Messiah, ruling and reigning and conquering king, right? Jesus is going to come and liberate all of us from Roman oppression, from the Roman rule, right? He is going to be one that is highly exalted, right? You know, pulling people together, forming armies and taking over the oppressors of that day and restoring us to rightful dignity. And here Jesus was taking on the posture of a lowly, servant. Their image of a Messiah figure had been utterly deconstructed. And so Judas was going like to, Peter was like, uh, Jesus was like, Judas, are you going to betray me? And Judas just runs off. And Peter was like, I'll never betray you. And then we all know what happened. Snakes. And so their understanding in this moment of Jesus as this political military leader was all falling apart in John chapter 13. And then you have this one scene in verse 23 that says this, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom or chest, 
one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, and we know this to be an apostle John. John was leaning on Jesus' chest in the midst of all this confusion, all this disruption, all this deconstruction, all this breaking of mindsets. John was leaning on Jesus, abiding in him. Now, we often forget who John the Apostle was. You remember who he was earlier in the Gospels? You know, remember what's his nickname? He was called Son of Thunder, right? Cue the ACDC music, right? Da, da. <laughs> right? And here's John, right, right? Who goes to do ministry with Jesus, and then he goes to a Samaritan village, and it's like, these people don't listen to you. You want me to call down fire and destroy all of them? And Jesus is like, you know, I come here to seek and save the lost. That's pretty counterintuitive, John, if you don't mind me saying. He's a son of thunder, right? But here we see in John 13 that his identity shifts from a son of thunder to an apostle of love. Read all of John's writing. It's all about love. It's all about God's love. He says, dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love, does not know God, for God is love. It's an apostle of love. So the question we're led to is, is how did a son of thunder become an apostle of love? One theory is that in the middle of confusion, crisis, tons of stuff going around, busyness, worry and fear and anxiety, John was found leaning on the chest of Jesus. He was found resting in Jesus. And that, folks, is what the Sabbath reality is. Sabbath is a time where we get our broken identity reformed into the image of Jesus. That's how we become different people. That's how we become people of love. When, you know, in, in our culture with all its demands, we will take a step back and rest in Jesus. So Bodo will say this about Sabbath. He says this, that Sabbath is a scheduled weekly reminder that we are not what we do, rather who we are loved by. That's what Sabbath is. Once a week, it is heading to the chest of Jesus to have our ambition and fear and confusion converted into security and converted into love. That is what the Sabbath is. Can I be very honest with you folks? One, things that use, one thing that used to bug me is when people fall asleep during my sermons. <laughs> you fall asleep during my sermon. I was like, why fall asleep? You know, I work very hard now. Then, you know, I didn't feel so bad once when I was watching, you know, recording my own sermon and I fell asleep <laughs> in my own sermon. So, I, 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 so I, I didn't feel so bad for you. I was like, this guy belabors the point and talks so long. Um, but you know, God spoke to me sometime back, you know, about this, you know, when, when people are forced to and just, you know, rest in, in church. And uh, I might regret saying this, because some of you might come in your pajamas. Uh, but, but, but the question I was led to consider is this, that what if the church becomes the best place in the world to learn how to rest, to take a real rest, to take a true rest? It's an exhausting world, friend. It's, it's an exhausting world. What if, you know, we can be a community of rest? We can teach people how to truly rest. Here's my point to all of you. Jesus is not glorified or seen as beautiful and desirable if his followers are exhausted in the same way the world is exhausted. When was the last time you look at a person, eye, eye, eye bags, you know, heavy, drooling, tired, grumpy, and you go, this is the vision of life in all its fullness? <laughs> Never, right? Jesus is glorified and is seen as beautiful when his people are rested contented and find joy 
in Him. They are ones who have overcome the way of the world. Final scripture for you. Exodus 33 says this, My presence will go with you and it will give you rest. My presence will go with you and it will give you rest. You know, I hunger and ache for a spiritual awakening in our world. And in light of all of these cultural shifts, don't we need a spiritual awakening in our world? Don't we need the presence of God to flood our city, to flood our lives? But I love that in this text, you know, it's not a kind of spiritual awakening that, you know, it's just related to people being convicted of their sin and God being glorified. That's really important. But in this text, we read that one of the surest evidence of God's presence coming upon a people, coming to a room, coming upon a city, is that rest comes. My presence will go with you, and it will give you rest. When the presence of God invades our world, an exhausted city will come to life again. A restful spirit is spiritual warfare in a culture of exhaustion. Amen. Can we all stand? Or lie down if you want. It's okay. <laughs> I don't mind. Lie down. Take a rest. Amen. You know, uh, one of the things that, uh, that you know, Amy and I regretted doing, uh, it's not a moral sin, and some of you might disagree, is that we regretted honeymooning in New York City. Uh, uh, because, you know, we are like, okay, we want to like get out of Singapore and like go to a place that is not Singapore. And then we're in New York City and I was like, wow, this is like Singapore times 10 <laughs> with like urine smell. And so, and, I mean, I love a lot of New York City. Don't, please, if you're from New York, please don't kill me. Uh, but yeah, you know, we wanted like slow, like wine country and like long drive and like, you know, farm animals, I don't know. But it was like concrete jungle where things are made of. And so, uh, and so it's like New York City, right? And so we went there, uh, but one of the, the, the most beautiful places that I've ever been uh, in my entire life was uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral uh, in, in New York City. And uh, if you've been to St. Pat Patrick's Cathedral, it's phenomenally beautiful. So beautiful, like captivating kind of beautiful. Like you take a step in and then like, you know, you just feel this, feel this like tremendous sense of peace and rest and just overwhelmed by the beauty all around you. It's something uh, that I think about to this day. Now, if you're familiar with the cathedral, you know that behind uh, the altar uh, is this statue of the boy Jesus. Uh, and I have that, that, that picture up. Uh, statue of the boy Jesus. Uh, yeah, right. And so that's, that's the statue of the boy Jesus. Just believe me. Uh, and here, right, in, in his hands, you see Jesus, the boy Jesus, carrying, you know, this fear which represents the world. He's carrying the world. It's represented by a small orb in his hand. If you've been around the area, you know that right across St. Patrick's Cathedral uh, is this uh, statue of Atlas. Now, Atlas, uh, we, we know, is, is uh, you know, in Greek mythology, and he was cursed to bear the weight of the world for all eternity. And here we see almost like a kind of like prophetic juxtaposition, don't you, right? In one kind of picture, you see Jesus holding the world in, his, in the palm of his hand, peace radiating from his face absolutely at rest. And then you see Atlas. He's straining, he's struggling, he's bearing this weight and burden all upon himself. I'd like to say to you this, you know, that the objective of this teaching is not like, okay, let me like go and like Marie Kondo my life and get rid of like anything that causes me stress. 
Maybe some of you need to do that. But here's the point, you know. Sometimes, for many of us, there's no getting around the burdens and demands of life, the stress of life. And Jesus will, will acknowledge that. He does not come to promise that He will take away all our burdens. He says, come and be yoked with me and I'll teach you how to carry them well. It's not a matter of eliminating our burdens, the weight in our life. It's about living in such a way, carrying them well, the way of Jesus, the way of rest. And Jesus would say that the way to enter into His rest is by embracing the Sabbath day. It's a simple idea, but it's something that we often forget. And that's why the fourth commandment begins this way. Remember the Sabbath day. Why? Because we are prone to Sabbath forgetfulness. We are prone in prosperity, we are prone in hustle, we are prone in advancement achievement to forget that we have been created by God Himself to take a day to delight, to rest, to pause, to reflect, to pray, to seek Him. And so, final verse as we close this time, Hebrews 4, says this, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A Sabbath rest for the people of God. For all of you who are weary, burdened, and tired and exhausted, this is good news to all of you. There is a Sabbath rest. There remains a Sabbath rest. In your hustle, in your busyness, in your wandering, there is a Sabbath rest. Architecture in time. They are our great cathedrals. And God would say, come to me. Pause. Cease. Rest find joy, find restoration, find love in me. Amen. Let us close in prayer and I invite you to just uh, close your eyes and uh, just take a moment to reflect uh, upon the words you've just heard. This great promise of scripture. Jesus, you have come to give us rest for our souls. You say that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. That is the reality that our heart aches for and craves for. God, we do not want to be formed in the way of the world by what culture says is right, is pleasing, is good. But we want to be formed into your image, Jesus. You who are Lord of all things, yet you who didn't literally take time off to seek the Father. We want to walk in your ways, Jesus. So God, we ask that in this moment, for where we battle exhaustion, for where we are experiencing kind of burnout, for where we feel our, our bones, our bodies riddled with anxiety and worry. God, won't you let your peace come and invade our bodies even now? Jesus, I ask for your peace to rest upon every head and every weary body. Your peace that brings our souls into rest, but it's also your peace that crushes the head of the enemy. The Prince of Peace crushes the head of Satan. So we pray for all who are experiencing kind of spiritual death in your hearts. May the Prince of Peace come to bring all things into order, even now. Thank you for your invitation of Scripture. Give us grace to respond to it wholeheartedly. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.